Why don't you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. If you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you one. Uh, if you're new, uh, catch up to speed. We've been going through a series uh, in looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what we've been saying all along is that really a theology and understanding of who God is that um, does not incorporate really an understanding of the Holy Spirit is really not a, a fully complete uh, theology, meaning we have a tendency to understand a little bit about who God the Father is, who Jesus is, all that's important, it's essential to our understanding or growth, um, but you really can't understand the fullness of what God is up to in this world um, and through the church without really an awareness and understanding as to who the Holy Spirit is. So what we've been saying all along, it's really essential to your walk with Jesus. If you're going to follow God, you've you got you to gotta understand a little bit about who he is. And I realize in a lot of ways uh, in church context or church culture, I would say, even at large, uh, there's a tendency to kind of avoid subject matter of the Holy Spirit. And part of that is due to the fact that throughout history, um, there has been a lot of controversy as to uh, the role of the Holy Spirit or who the Holy Spirit is. Not so much as to who the Holy Spirit is, but really the role of the Holy Spirit, or oftentimes what gets chalked up to or committed to actual acts of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, to put it into more of a modern context, what you have are basically two major extremes within Christianity where some would tend to focus a lot upon the Holy Spirit and the movement and the work of the Holy Spirit and attribute lots of different things to the Holy Spirit, some of which may or may not be or kind of a little bit questionable as to whether or not it really is the Holy Spirit. And on the opposite extreme, you have those that would basically say that the Holy Spirit is way more behind the scenes. He never really ever knows much about what he does. There's a tendency to focus more upon we just want the Bible and there's not really much of talk about who the Holy Spirit is. And the reality is, is that if you read the New Testament, you'll find that much of what gets attributed to God's redemptive work happening uh, in this world through or stemming from uh, the cross, Jesus, uh, is due to the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul writes a lot about the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Holy Spirit. So uh, we want to have a robust theology that incorporates, it's not, doesn't shy away from, that's not afraid to deal with who the Holy Spirit is, and really how the Holy Spirit works, and to really, if we have to, uh, shape or reshape our theological presuppositions based upon that. So in other words, put it this way. If you've always had sort of mentality in your mind where like, I don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit, it kind of creeps me out, it's a little bit weird, what I would hope is that you would deal with that and begin to realize, well, wait a minute, you should not be ashamed to talk about who the Holy Spirit is. What you should do, what we want to do, is to actually engage it from a biblical perspective. We want to let the Word of God reshape, if need be, or completely shape, need be, um, our understandings of who the Holy Spirit is. So, with that being said, I want to kind of pick up what we've been looking at over the past several weeks, our various ways in which the Holy Spirit works. So we've seen like topics like the Holy Spirit and Jesus, the Holy Spirit and the Father, uh, in terms of who the person is. And then we began to look a little bit at some of the actions of the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit and uh, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and power. These are some of the ways in which the Holy Spirit is introduced to us and talked about within the Scripture. So the past uh, two weeks, this is kind of week number three, we've been looking at primarily or specifically the role of the Holy Spirit and what's typically called spiritual gifts. 
Um, what we said from the very beginning is the word spiritual gifts is kind of a bad translation. So most of us, if you've been around in any way, shape, or form Christian culture for any length of time, you've heard people talk about spiritual gifts. And sometimes we talk about it in the context of like, well, what's your spiritual gift? Like, someone would be like, my spiritual gift is X, Y, and Z. And you're like, well, that's not my spiritual gift. My spirit. And there's a tendency to really talk a lot about the idea of spiritual gifts. And it's really not a great translation. The word, which we'll look at in a second here, more has to do with function or a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose. In other words, God is doing something in this world, within the church, and that something that God does is called pneumaticos. I mean, you're like, what in the world did he just say? Pneumaticos, which is what Paul describes as this is the functioning or the working of the Holy Spirit. It's the word pneumaticos, what we oftentimes call spiritual gifts. So spiritual gifts, which will kind of give you a little bit better definition in a second, it's actually ways in which the Holy Spirit works in this world through people like you and I. Broken, dysfunctional, filled with baggage type of people, uh, foolish people. God uses and chooses foolish people just like you and I to become vehicles of transmitting, communicating, demonstrating wholeness and healing in this broken world. Um, this is, and the way that he does this is through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So I want to read just a couple passages to you guys out of sort of the primary passage or the framework which Paul addresses this thing called pneumaticos or spiritual gifts. And it's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm not going to read uh, the entire thing. So what I have kind of up here on screen, I'm just going to uh, select a couple passages. Uh, we, we read the entire thing last week. I'll just read a couple of them. So verse 1, chapter 12, Paul says this now concerning spiritual gifts. There's that word, pneumaticos. Uh, appears lots of other places in the New Testament. But Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. Um, the irony here is that we said in the past couple of weeks is that really for the past 2,000 years, uh, the church has been nothing but uninformed. So in other words, this is kind of the strange irony that Paul's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. That's why I'm writing this stuff to you. But here we are, and 2,000 years later, we're you know, divided over this. We can't see eye to eye. Whole new churches kind of are formed over this. Conferences are done because of this. Books are written as a result of this because we simply do not agree. We're, we're really uninformed as to the main thrust or purpose behind what the spiritual gifts are. So uh, that's a little bit of an irony there. But Paul is saying, I don't want you to be uninformed about these pneumaticos, these spirituals, these spiritual gifts, as most of our translations will say. Some of your translations might say, not spiritual gifts, but spirituals. Some of you are like, that doesn't make any sense. So I want to talk to you about spirituals. We're like, what in the world is spirituals? I think maybe like the New King James or King James might say that. But he goes on to say, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts. The word that he uses there, gifts, is the uh, Greek word uh, charis. Uh, some of your translations might say graces. The word charis literally is the word grace, or it's the idea of gifting. Um, you combine that with the word pneumaticos. These giftings actually come from or come by way of 
the Holy Spirit, the pneumaticos, is doing these things within the context. So I've got to give you a little bit of a theological background, so hopefully I don't lose you guys, or hopefully you don't fall asleep. If you do fall asleep, I'll wake you up at five. But the point of the matter is, this is really essential to kind of the background as to what Paul is identifying here. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of services, but the same Lord. If you want to pay attention, there's a phrase that Paul uses often. So the main phrase, it's the biggie on the eye chart, in other words, where Paul is going to say the same Lord, same Spirit. The idea here is that uh, even though there are a variety of ways in which God works, it's all through a singular vehicle, a singular, singular channel means called the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is doing something, uh, and there's a purpose and a means or a meaning behind why God does what he does to the Holy Spirit. We'll show unpack in a sec. Verse 6, he says, And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same Lord who empowers them all and everyone. To teach is, uh, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So verse 7 kind of basically spills the beans and tells us exactly what God is up to through this third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. Um, what the, the pneumaticos are for. What the purpose of them are. And what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit gives these gifts, these pneumaticos, uh, mentioned this last week, John Wimber, who's the founder of the uh, Vineyard Movement, described them as bracelets, kind of like a bracelet, but the Holy Spirit gives these little bracelets to God's people for a specific purpose to bring about encouragement to other people. Now, this kind of led into a little bit, some of this review from last week, different types of misconceptions, and I want to unpack a couple of those right now, and then we're going to go into taking a look at some of the nine different gifts that Paul describes. So here's a little bit of background in terms of some of the manifest or the uh, uh, misrepresentation or misunderstanding, I should say. I think they'll, they're looking for the slide right there, right? So ways in which uh, misconceptions. There we go. Um, one is that the spiritual gifts are really just for an elite grouping of Christians, uh, the idea is that if you're really spiritual, you read your Bible a lot, you avoid R-rated movies, and you only listen to, you know, Christian music, that somehow God in kindness will make you a super Christian and you'll have these spiritual gifts. But if you do go to R-rated movies, if you do drink beer, if you do listen to non-Christian music, then somehow you are outside of that elite group of spiritual people. And therefore, there's a tendency for people to kind of create kind of this elite class and this sub-elite class, if that's even a word, or varsity team and junior varsity team. The idea is a false conception, or misconception as to how the Holy Spirit works. Completely, blatantly a misconception. That really, what Paul is saying in verse 7, that if you are a Christian, by virtue of the Holy Spirit living in you, the gift giver is inside you. And he chooses, whenever he wills, to release those giftings through you to other people. So it's not a matter of elite versus horrible, or varsity versus junior varsity, or super Christian versus, you know, one that is constantly failing and struggling and falling into, you know, pits and feeling horrible, that God will use all of us. What this does, this is this unbelievably great equalizer. So what this means, no matter who you are, if you're a Christian, if Jesus has rescued you, if you are saved, however you want to describe it, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. That means that God 
has brought you into his kingdom, and his kingdom is inside you, and God wants to release his kingdom work through you, beyond you, and you are one that he will use to give gifts, these uh, pneumaticos, to you. The second misconception is this, is that every Christian receives one, or if you're really lucky, a couple, spiritual gift at conversion, and in some circles, uh, at spirit. Uh, baptism. So again, this is a little bit of a misconception because what this tends to do is tends to focus upon the fact that, or the idea that if you're a Christian, you got your gift. This kind of dovetails in the third one, which is each Christian is individually responsible to figure out what gift they have. So what this does kind of leads us down a path that basically of self-discovery. It's about discovering the gift that you uniquely have. The problem with this is, is I, what I've been trying to make are there these distinctions. Every one of us have Gifts, all right, just general. We can call this what uh, scholars, theologians would describe as common grace. In other words, God gives to every human being alive, whether they're a Christian or non-Christian, Jew or Gentile, male or female, whoever, God gives to every human being alive certain unique, common giftings. So in other words, what is a common gifting for you might be radically different than a common gifting for somebody else. So what that means is in this room right now, there's some that are super gifted at music. There's some of you that cannot sing at all, and you shouldn't sing um, in front of people. Um, in the shower, that's fine, but, and, but you're welcome to sing here as loud as you want because it's okay, we still love you, but, and God hears it all awesome, anyhow. But the point of the matter is, is that some are uniquely gifted, so when they grab a guitar and when they begin to sing, everybody stops and listens, and they're like mesmerized. They're like, oh my gosh, that's really, really good. Like, we say things like this, wow, they are really gifted, right? So there are giftings. There are people that are just naturally good at certain things, and others are naturally good at other certain things. That's not necessarily spiritual giftings. It can be used by God to bring great blessings. So in other words, if you are gifted in a natural, common way with music, you can use that music in a way that brings great blessing to our church. We've got a lot of amazing uh, musicians in our church. Our church is incredibly gifted with a lot of incredible artists and musicians and photographers and videographers. We're a super uber artistic type of a group of people, which is, which is awesome. I love this because art done well leads us to this, this road of beauty. And there's something about beauty that we just feel when we enter into it. We're like, ah, oh, life is right because that's what, that's what art does it is really to end it to lead into some form of beauty. I mean, it could be by way of singing or, you know, painting or photography or even making really good food because food really at its climax is like, uh, is like art. It's awesome. It's really good. But the point of the matter is this. That's not necessarily spiritual gifts. Those are just gifts that God's given you and harnessed by the power of God can be used to bring great blessing to other people. What I think Paul's describing here as far as spiritual gifts are various things that God at any time when he chooses the way, verse 7 says to distribute to his people for the purpose of bringing blessing and encouragement to his church family and beyond. That's what it seems to be describing. So if I can put it this way, there seems to be a de-emphasis upon focusing on your individual gifting versus asking God, uh, how do you want to use your gifting through me? So let me, let me put it to you in the way that uh, a famous scholar, theologian, a guy that I love, is a saintly man named Gordon Fee, describes it something like this in one of his messages. Um, he says this, don't read 1 Corinthians 12 list and obsess over which gift do I have. Rather, read the list and ask God, 
how do you want to manifest, kind of broke it down into three like little points, how do you want to manifest, it's in other words, how do you, it's the emphasis upon God, how do you want to manifest your healing ways through me to somebody else? You see, the shift, the emphasis is radically different. The shift is rather focused upon what is your spiritual gift versus what is God up to? And one drives us more inward to focus upon who we are and how we're made and what our gifting is and whatnot and the, versus shifting us to ask the question, where are we at within the framework of God's people and how open are we to letting God use us any way that he chooses to be? Does that make sense? You understand a little bit of the difference of emphasis? So this is really what I want to focus on. John Wimber kind of, again, also had another really great quote. I'll read it. He says this. He said, the gifts of the Spirit are not, I love this, they're not trophies talents, traits, or toys. The gifts of the Spirit are God's supernatural expressions of love, caring, kindness, healing, and concern bestowed on us and through us to others. Love that definition because that's exactly what it is. God's giftings, uh, the pneumaticos, as is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, the pneumaticos are God's manifestations, his presence, his healing, his expressions of love through us to other people. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, I want to keep going. Thank you for that vote of confidence. Rest of you, I feel really, really insecure now. I'm just kidding. So the emphasis, again, is not so much upon what is your personal gift. It's really upon what is God up to. And where are you at in position to what God's up to? What's the posture of your heart to what God's up to? It's a, it's a big shift, I realize, for some of us to consider and think about, but I, I want to encourage you to actually at least consider it to think about it. So, again, verse 7 makes it really clear why God does what God does through the working of the Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 7 again. I'll read it. He says this. To each is given, again, to each, if you're a Christian, you are part of that each. It's not each in terms of Varsity and junior varsity. It's each, if you have Jesus living in your heart, the Holy Spirit has made residence inside you. In other words, if you are saved, God will give you whatever he chooses to give. Uh, Each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, for the good of bringing blessing and encouragement and insight and life and healing and reordering to each other within the body of Christ, within the church. In other words... It's about God setting right that which has been out of place or out of joint. That's what God's up to. So this really taps into the larger scale focus of what God's up to within this world. In other words, it kind of brings us right around back to the preaching, the communication of the gospel. That God is come into this world to set right that which is broken. To heal that which is soiled. To bring deliverance to that which is, to, to somebody that which is bound, to bring reordering where there was nothing but disorder and chaos, that we have a God that has not abandoned us, we have a God that has come into our lives, into this world, to bring about healing. And he continues to do that healing through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now is at work in his church, in this world right now, doing this work. So the question that we'll get at in just a moment here is how aware are we of that work of the Holy Spirit, and how open are we to that work? How much are we submitting, giving our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, 
all that we are, over to God. And really, what motivates that, which is something we'll talk about in a second. So with that, I want to begin to jump in and take a look at the list. There's a list of nine of them. We looked at two of them last week. I'll go over those two real briefly. It's, first of all, the word of wisdom or the message of wisdom, the message of knowledge. These are similarly linked. Um, and within Greek culture, which is, again, Paul was writing to a church that was living in a city called Corinth. And uh, if you ever kind of wonder what is Corinthian, what does that mean? It's actually uh, a person, who, a resident in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a kind of a, a port city. It was a city that had uh, deep, long history or historical roots in uh, Alexander the Great. So there's a lot of Greco-Roman crossover and culture within that community. And so in other words, what that means is that this was a community of people that were deeply aware of knowledge, gnosis is the Greek word, as well as uh, philosophy, which is the love of wisdom. And so what a lot of scholars actually think Paul is doing here by putting these two, knowledge and wisdom, up front is, is basically repurposing what they would have understood within the culture as being something that was highly valued, knowledge, Wisdom was highly valued within a Greco-Roman culture. What Paul is basically doing is he's kind of repurposing that by saying that those same ideas, knowledge and wisdom, are also things of God. And they're life-giving, if properly understood. Paul actually tells us what the wisdom of God is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he actually says, the preaching of the cross is the wisdom of God, but it's total foolishness to the rest of the world. So in other words, the idea of Jesus coming to die, a, a death of weakness, to a Greco-Roman world, the thought of a male coming into the world and making himself subjected to weakness was absolute, shockingly crazy foolishness. And Paul's saying, I get it. But it was that weakness that actually brought about our life, our salvation. So Paul addresses the idea of wisdom and knowledge. And then I want to jump in. We'll just begin to take a look at these. We won't spend a lot of time looking at them because the main focus that I want to emphasize is how Paul is describing that this is really, these are gifts to be given to all the body when God sees fit, how God sees fit for the aim, for the main purpose of the building up and the strengthening of the church community, the church family. Faith begins to talk about it. It's the Greek word pistos. Um, this is a lot of scholars would recognize there's two different types of, or at least two different types of faith that are described within the Bible. Some would describe as first type as saving faith. Saving faith would basically be um, the faith that we exercise, which we have by trusting in God. Uh, the storyline in the Bible basically says that we as human beings have chosen to trust in something other than Christ, to trust in something other than God. So by nature, the default bent of our heart is to trust in somebody uh, there are empty promise to us or a job that will somehow get us out of debt and then give us money and then that will give us life, uh, to trust in some, something that will somehow give us our identity back. So what happens as human beings, we trust in something else. But what faith is, salvation, saving faith, is this transition that says, I'm going to stop trusting in all of these other empty lies and I will trust in Jesus. He will rescue me. I trust that he will give me a new identity. I trust that he will give me a new life. I trust that he will reorient my desires away from that which is destructive and broken and reorient my desires so that they will lead towards that which is life. So if you're a Christian here, you've gone through this path already. You've placed your confidence, your trust in Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. What that means by default is that there's something in your life right now that you're trusting in that's 
that's promising you life. So you trust that, and at some point, that thing that's promising you life will break. And when it breaks, what we typically do is we shift trust from that into something else. And we just kind of live this constant ongoing cycle, live in this cul-de-sac of shifting from one thing that we place confidence in to something else. And as the first former one breaks, we shift it into something else. And that's the life that oftentimes people without Jesus live. But what salvation is, is God coming to your life, showing you by grace that he is actually far better than the hope that can come from a boyfriend or a girlfriend or the hope that could come through getting married or the hope that could come from getting a job or the hope that can come from somehow sustaining a lot of money, that the hope that comes from everything else that we place our confidence in, we place and ship that confidence in Jesus, then we're saved. That is what I would describe as saving faith. We turn away from, by way of an act of what's called repentance, we turn to Jesus for salvation. That's salvation faith. Uh, saving faith. The faith I think Paul is describing here is a faith that's in God for just the work that God is up to. In a lot of ways, it's just sort of uh, an active confidence in God in spite of all of the other adversarial pushback in our lives. In other words, if somebody comes into this place of faith where the Holy Spirit helps them to have confidence in God in spite of all sorts of other setbacks and circumstances in their life, we would not call this optimism. We would call this a supernatural gift of faith that God gives someone in those types of challenges and circumstances. I'll give an example of kind of how this works. Uh, In the book of Daniel, some of you guys are familiar with Daniel, there are three guys by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right, you guys have ever seen Veggie Tales, uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. But the point of the matter is, is these are three guys that were basically all thrown within what's known as this fiery dungeon, all right? They did something to upset the king. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was actually the, the centralized power of uh, Babylon, which was basically the militaristic, economic, social powerhouse of the world in that era. So they literally stood up to him and says, King, we refuse to bow down and worship any other God other than Yahweh. And you're asking us to worship an idol or an image that represents you. You're just a human being. We refuse to bow our knee to worship an image that represents just a human being because we worship Yahweh. The king's like, fine, we're going to throw you into fiery furnace and you're going to die. And they're like, you throw us in the fiery furnace, we still will not Bend our knee to you. So your threats to us ring hollow. And what happens is this amazing little passage. It says in Daniel chapter 3. I'll just read a couple little sections of it. Verse 17, it says, uh, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. He says, if this be so, our God, we, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Love it. So they, they basically say two things. First of all, they say to the king, they're like, look, we have absolute 100% confidence God's going to deliver us. What is that? That's, that's this supernatural moment where the Holy Spirit gives faith to these guys. And they, they end with this kind of like little caveat. They're like, and even if, I love this, it's kind of like hedging their bets. Like, they're like, even if God doesn't save us, in other words, even if we come out toast, we still won't bend our knee to you. I love this. So these guys had this amazing big faith in God in spite of all other opposition to them. They're just like, we're going to trust God. 
We're just going to trust God in the midst of this. We know that's what we're called to do. That's, we won't bend our knee. We won't turn away from God. We will just turn to inward to, toward God. And what happens, obviously, is you know the story. They, they end up coming out of the fire furnace. We're told that there's one, like the Son of God, walking with them in this fire furnace. So the point of the matter is, is that they have this big faith in God in spite of all of the other circumstances that seem to be pushing against them. I'll give you another example. Um, my wife and I, when we first were thinking about actually moving up here, it was about a little over uh, 22 years ago now, um, my wife and I had moved up here, and we kind of came up here with the main intention of planting a church. We didn't really know exactly what that meant. We were both 23 years old. We both had been married for two years. We got married when we were 20. We just knew that God was telling us to move to San Luis Obispo. We had no idea why. I mean, we kind of had an idea. We, we, we knew, we felt, we thought that God wanted us to come plant a church. We had no idea what that meant. I had no training. I didn't go to seminary. We didn't know anything. We literally, like, people ask, what did you know? Like, we knew nothing. We just knew that God was saying, go to slow. Like, that's all we knew. And we had people tell us, like, that's stupid. Like, why would you do that? You guys don't have jobs. You don't have a place to live. No one's going to rent you a house because you, 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 can't, you can't even prove that you live there. We're like, but we know. I mean, part of it was the fact that we were, like, 23, I think. Um, the other part of it was just God somehow, I think, miraculously gave us faith. We just had this confidence that God was saying, go. We just knew. We just knew that we knew that we knew that we were supposed to go to slow. And the rest is history. I mean, that's the kind of short, truncated version. But the fact of the matter is, like, like that's, we look at the fact that God gave us a supernatural gifting, pneumaticos, in that moment to trust him in spite of opposition, in spite of what seems to just look to be kind of like a foolish, young, uh, spontaneous, silly action. It was, it was God all along actually leading and guiding us. How many of you guys, any of you here would, would say that you, you, can, you can experience it, you've experienced that, maybe there are circumstances in your life that everything looks bleak, uh, maybe it was a disease that you had, and you just had this confidence in your heart, like, I know that I know that God's going to help me through this, and you had other people saying to you, like, you're ridiculous, like, this doesn't make any sense, you're, or you're in denial, like, that's the big one, like, you are so calm, and you've got cancer, you're going to die, the fact that you're not freaking out, pulling your hair out, going gray, is because you are in denial. And in your heart of hearts, you're just like, no, I just, I just know that God's, God's good and God's in control of this. I have absolute confidence that God's going to carry me through this. Any, anybody experience something like that in your life? You could just say that it was the pneumaticos, the Holy Spirit, giving you some form of power of trust him in the midst of that. Yeah? Some of you got David? I want to, okay, I'm going I'm to do something that you didn't expect. I'm going to have you come on up. Can you share? Do you mind? You like to talk. I know David. He likes to talk. Come on. Can you tell us a story? Yeah. We want to know the back story. Okay. It's an embarrassing story. Is it? Not yeah, too much, but foolishness. So I used to work at this guest ranch and resort. It was a cowboy dude ranch, and I would sometimes... Wait, are you a cowboy? No. Okay. <laughs> I serve food. Um, and we forgot hot chocolate, and we were doing a barbecue out of the lake. And so I drove this van to go get the chocolate, hot chocolate. But there was a hay wagon. Uh, there probably like 70 people in the hay wagon. And there's this hill that comes up. And I have to go on the, off this little small road to let this hay wagon go by. So I do. And the weeds are like this tall. And the van gets stuck in this ditch. 
and being 17, I was completely stupid, and I was like, I'm going to get out, and I'm going to get this van out of this ditch, which I did, and the van was going down all by itself. And so I jumped in, and by jumping in, the uh, van did a 90-degree turn and went off the cliff. And, um, but before it went off the cliff, I was sitting there, and I'm in the passenger seat, and I can't quite shift this thing out of neutral into the drive, which I was trying to do. And I looked, and I saw that it was in reverse, and I had made a mistake. And I screamed out to the Lord right there, because I knew, like, the safety, you know, you got to push the brake to be able to get out of a gear. And I just yelled out to the Lord. I was like, Lord, right now, do a miracle. Like, throw this thing to drive. Like, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And he didn't. And we went off this cliff. And I just remember the van just took air, hit the ground, dust went everywhere. And I was just like, wow, I'm, this is it. This is over. And I was sitting in the passenger seat, like, just getting bounced around. And I had the time to look out the window. And um, in that moment, like, the Lord just gave me an overwhelming, like, peace that I can't even describe to you right now at all. Like, it was, like, so good. And I was sitting there, and I was like, this is hilarious. Like, this is how I'm going to go down. Like, this is so sad. I'm so sorry, Mom and Dad. Like, this is stupid. Your, your son, how embarrassing. And, um, but I just was like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with, with dying right now. Like, that's fine. Like, I, I just, it's completely supernatural. Like, completely overwhelming with the faith that everything was going to be in his control. And now he wanted to do it. And the van came to a stop. Like, it literally went down this whole cliff, about 70 feet crashed, got stuck in a ditch, and I went flying out one side, like busted through the window and stuff, and, and then I'm sitting there, and I, I run up the hill, and then I just stop, and I just look down at this van that's down there, and um, I was just, just singing praises to my God right there, and um, what the Lord taught me through that was, one, he has me alive for a reason, I don't know exactly what it is, but he has the power to give me complete peace in a situation that I, I feel like I should not have lived through. And two, his timing of, like, miracles and how that happens, it's, his timing is best. Like, if I had, if he had performed the miracle of throwing that thing into drive and I would have been able to drive forward and out, who knows how many people I would have told um, that he saved my life. But instead, he threw me down into a pit where it became so obvious to every single person that he alone saved me. I can't tell you how many people, because I worked at a, this place that had 300 employees. Every single employee knew who I was, and every single person came up and like, oh, you're the kid, like, there's someone watching out for you. And I'm like, yes, yes, there is. Like, and he humbled me, and like, it was amazing. So like, I can't, I never forget that moment, though, the Lord like, sitting out the window, looking out, just going down this cliff, and just feeling the Lord's presence, like, I've got this, and I've got you, and this is my plan for you. And if you die, like, I, I don't know, like, I just knew, like, in that moment, like, everything was going to be all right. And looking back, it's a huge, huge um, kind of milestone in my life that really shapes the direction and the choices that I make and, and the trust that I have in him. So That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks for that unscripted moment. That was awesome. Um, so the thing is that God, obviously, in circumstances like that, gave you an overwhelming sense of faith, confidence, and just trust in him in the midst of everything that seemed to be against you. 
He had a confidence in God. Uh, same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is uh, the pneumaticos, the gift that God gives, a confidence in himself that's different than, distinct from saving faith in moments like that. Again, we don't just wake up in the morning and we're like, I'm just going to wish this faith upon me. It's that God, by grace and circumstances, just gives this to you in moments that you're not necessarily expecting it. Sometimes it comes in response to asking God for help. God comes. It's this pneumaticos, this gift, this thing that comes from the Holy Spirit for a specific aim or purpose. Uh, the fourth one he describes is healing. Healing is obviously one of the things that uh, gets a lot of uh, showcasing within the church. Um, some, even within the church, have uh, gone so far to dismiss in a lot of ways because there is a lot of like craziness sometimes surrounding this. I mean, we've all seen televangelists and people that kind of abuse this, and we have certain uh, faith healers and people that kind of make a lot of money off of this type of stuff. And yes, there are abuses of this type of stuff, but the reality is, is that God does... Did I just go out? Am I still on? No, okay. Um, there are, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the Holy Spirit does still want to work and bring healing in people's lives. So obviously we know, we're very familiar with the healings that were done with Jesus. But do you know that also throughout the Old Testament, there were passages that describe healings that actually happened? So in other words, the idea of God healing people actually predates Jesus. So sometimes the arguments that will say that things like healings were done uh, within the New Testament era for a specific purpose to launch the church. I don't think there's a lot of weight or biblical account that you can make for that um, in the long run. But the point is that what we see is that uh, miracles and healings, and these are kind of two closely linked ones that took place in the Old Testament. Uh, Elisha kind of raises people back from the dead. There's miracles and healings that take place. We all, obviously, like I mentioned, are all familiar with Jesus' healings and miracles and whatnot. Um, but the Apostle Paul also was a part of uh, God giving these gracelets, these moments, these uh, times of, of pneumaticos for healing of other people. Uh, Acts chapter 28, verse 8 says this. And it happened that the father of Publius, uh, a leader, he says that he was laying sick with the fever and dysentery. So obviously this guy was sick. He was not feeling good. It says, and Paul visited him and prayed for him, putting his hands on him. And it just simply tells us this, that he healed them. That, that Paul actually, I should say, healed him. Paul healed this guy. It wasn't Paul healing him. It was the Holy Spirit through Paul that led Paul, no doubt, to lay hands on this guy, to go to this guy, to pray for this guy, and then ultimately see God Heal this guy. So the fact of the matter is we actually believe that God can still do healings, that God wants to heal people. And again, when we talk about healing, we're not just simply talking physical healing. We believe that God can do physical healings. But it's even beyond that. I mean, it could be emotional healing. It could be healings from past wounds and challenges and difficulties and bruises uh, upon your conscience that you've had. That God can bring healings in all sorts of different ways. We see that that's what Jesus did. So we want to be a church that recognizes, a community of people that recognizes that God wants to still bring healing into people's lives on every different level. The reality is that everything in this universe, through the gospel, one day will make a final end in the realm, the sphere of healing. We're told in the book of Revelation that one of these days when Jesus comes back again and restores and establishes the finality of his kingdom. In other words, when heaven and earth begin to completely come in agreement with each other one final time, the final time, that we're told that there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. Jesus will actually wipe away every tear from our eyes. Uh, the words that are also used there to describe it are peace. God will bring 
peace. He'll initiate, bring about peace. That shalom, that peace that God will one day bring, implies universal healing. That God will bring healing to all who trust in him. Those who don't want Jesus, those who are not interested in the healing that Jesus brings, uh, will, won't receive that healing. But the fact is that Jesus wants to bring healing. This is what we see oftentimes throughout the New Testament, oftentimes accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles, the way it's oftentimes described. Sixthly, I'm going to jump in. We'll kind of group healing and working of miracles together on down to prophecy. Uh, the idea of prophesying seems to indicate some form of speaking forth, communicating, and again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time really talking about this, but it seems to be this indication that God is a speaking, communicating God. He's not silent, in other words. Uh, in other words, he's not a God that just doesn't ever talk. He's a God that actually does speak. He's got a lot to say. Uh, oftentimes, what he has to say, we, we read through the Word of God. We believe the Bible is actually what God has to speak. But also, there is the preaching of the Word of God. So when the Bible is spoken and taught and preached, kind of like in settings like this or a small group, that we believe that God is actually speaking. So the point that I would make is that we, what we're trying to say is that these pneumaticos, these gifts of the Spirit, whenever God does something, whenever, say, someone is healed or a truth comes to life for you that you've never really thought of before, something makes sense, uh, you have a glimpse of God like you've never had before, something happens in those, what we would say is that those are manifestations of the Holy Spirit at work in that moment. God's working. God's doing something. And that's the type of church that we want to be. We want to be people that are instruments of God's active, working presence in this world. That's what the church really, for the most part, is. When the church becomes nothing but a club or a teaching center or a lecture hall or something we do on the weekends where it just kind of occupies an hour and a half of our time, when we, when we lose sight of the mission, in other words... When we lose sight of the mission of what God's called us to be in this world, we have sort of this identity crisis. We kind of go through this like, well, what's the church all about? What should we be going to it for? So what happens is we have a whole generation of people that are kind of looking at the church as being uh, superfluous or as obsolete. Like, why do we even need the church? But the church, when we realize that it's God's community, it's God's healing agent within this world, that in working with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in working with the church, And the church approaching God with sort of open arms saying, God, here we are. Use us in any way that, God, you choose to do. Help us. Use my lips. Use my hands. Use my mind. God, if there's something you want to speak through me, to me, beyond me, to other people. Now the church has purpose, has meaning. It it becomes this agent in this world that demonstrates, points people back to the greatness of Christ. That's what the church is all about. So prophecy becomes sort of this speaking forth, this communicating to others what God is up to. So this becomes really poignant for us. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, last week, uh, it was my daughter's birthday, and so one of the things that she wanted to do is go to our friend's house and have a little bonfire. So afterwards, my daughter is actually in a couple of weeks going to be heading out to Texas um, for almost a year. She's going to be involved in leading a Bible study with a group out there called Chi Alpha. And so... Um, what we did is we gathered together, all of our friends, and people that were just kind of hanging out there that night, and we just said, let's just, let's just pray for her. So we ended up praying for her, and so afterwards, after we were, or I should say, kind of as we were praying, there's a couple people that just said, hey, Brianna, there's a couple thoughts that are on my mind, and, you know, one of the, one of the guys that was there just started sharing some of the images or pictures that he had in his mind, and it was, it was basically speaking these words of encouragement 
prophesying, really, speaking forth words of encouragement and exhortation to her. And what was happening in that moment was any fears, doubt, were basically being suppressed. And in exchange of that was being replaced with confidence, faith, hope, peace. You know what that was? That was the Holy Spirit's manifestation coming in and wiping away all the fear, doubt, angst, pain, worry, all those other things, and God replacing it. This is what we're saying, that this is what God wants to do all the time, not just on a Sunday morning, not just in a small group, every day of our lives. God wants to do those things. God wants to use us to be mouthpieces for this type of blessing. So imagine being a part of a community of people. So just use your imagination for a second and think about this. Imagine being a part of a community of people where as you get together, you're asking God, God, is there anything you want to speak through me to anybody around here? Is there, are, there, are there pictures, are there images you want to share through me to other people? God, I want to be able to be an encouragement. I want to be a blessing to people around me. That if there are people sitting next to me that may be going through tough times or difficulties or sickness. If someone's sick, God, I want to be able to have faith to pray for them. So can you imagine being in the community of people that, for example, you're just simply living your life in and on the Central Coast, and you come across somebody that may be, may be sick, or maybe having a limp, or some sort of disease or sickness that they're fighting with. Can you imagine being the type of person that just does the crazy thing and says, you know what, do you, do you mind if I pray for you? It might seem kind of weird and awkward, but I know that it seems like you're hurting, or it seems like you got some difficulty. Do you mind if I just pray for you? Can you imagine the type of impact that could have upon people? I mean, do you realize, now, that might not mean that God's going to heal everybody all the time, because that doesn't always necessarily happen that way. Because we don't just simply, again, we're not going out and making this stuff happen. We're just simply encouraging you to think about what does it look like for you to be a vessel in the right place and just simply asking God, how do you want to use me in this moment? How do you want to speak through me in this moment? That's what it means to live present in the kingdom of God. So I want to go through these other ones and wrap it up real fast. Uh, seven, we see the sermon of spirits. This seems to be uh, the way the Holy Spirit indicates upon people's hearts and minds and thoughts to help them either bear witness to uh, truth or to uh, bear witness against things that are not true. So in other words, if you've ever been in a situation where you're hearing something being spoken or you're in a circumstance and it might be a little bit awkward and you can't necessarily articulate what's going on, but in your soul, in the depth of who you are, there's just something's not right, kind of this aggravation, this, this, this jointedness with inside that could be at work with kind of, in your heart, kind of a sense of discernment of spirits. That God's spirit is uh, somehow allowing you to sense a disharmony with what, really what God's doing. That whatever's happening in there is not in harmony with God. That seems to be what Paul's describing, discernment of spirits. Again, we don't simply, some are more discerning of others. Um, we, we like a show called Lie to Me. You guys ever seen that? Lie to Me? Like that guy's really good at discerning uh, whether or not people are lying. All right, it's a great show. Um, he reads their faces. But that's different than a gift of discerning. A, a gift of discernment is in a moment God just speaks to your heart, you sense something. It might not be, it's, now when I say speak to your heart, don't, don't envision this audible voice being like, you know, somehow saying something to you. This, it's more of an impression, a feeling, a gut feeling, if you want to say it that way, that something's not resonating right. And the final two kind of go together, speaking unknown languages and interpreting them. Uh, this is one of the ones that gets most of the airplay whenever people talk about it. Uh, spiritual gift, spiritual giftings. And then this is obviously one of the ones that was a biggie within Paul's day. 
Uh, again, I wish I had more time to kind of unpack this, but Paul actually, a lot of scholars believe, puts this last on the list because in the life of the Corinthian believers, this was actually the one that they were doing all the time. And what Paul basically says is at the end of the day, uh, those who speak in this unknown tongue or unknown languages, um, and I realize I may be making a lot more questions for you than I'm actually answering questions for you, but what Paul is basically describing is that the most important gifts should be gifts that bring about the building up of each other. So if you think of it this way, the whole idea behind these pneumaticos, these giftings of God, is for the aim of building up and encouraging other people. So if you're in that community and you are living your life in a way whereby you're subjecting your heart, submitting yourself to God, saying, God, I want to be your mouthpiece, what it will look like is healing, transformation, wholeness, forgiveness, encouragement, generosity. Doesn't that sound like the type of place you want to be in all the time? Doesn't that sound like the type of place you want to subject your heart and be part of? So the final question I really kind of want to ask and finish with this is what does a spirit or a life filled with spirit manifestations look like? So if I can use that phrase, spirit manifestations, as kind of the same type of word or same idea as pneumaticos, what does a life filled with spirit manifestations look like? Well, the simple, short Sunday school answer is it looks like Jesus. It's simply the fact. That is the life of Jesus. I'll give you an example. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says this. And God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So what does that look like? So if Jesus was spirit anointed, in other words, the Holy Spirit was moving upon, moving through Jesus, what did Jesus' life look like? I think we would all agree Jesus' life was awesome. I mean, his life was amazing. We look at him and even non-Christians can step back and absolutely admire Jesus because of the type of person that he was. What we're told is that Jesus went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and God was with him. Um, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. This is what it looks like, a life that is filled with spirit manifestations. So kind of, you can correlate your life or bring your life into some sort of light under that and ask, is that... Is that does that in any way kind of represent who we are? Or at least, if anything, it should be the aim of what we want to do. We want to be that type of community. We want to be that type of people. When people come in to our gatherings, come into our lives even, not just simply our gatherings, but come into our lives, meaning our next-door neighbors, a person that lives or works next to us, or somebody that we know because we're constantly having to make us their, you know, our daily cappuccino, whatever the case is, we have people in our lives. What would it look like for us to be people that everywhere we go, we're just like, Lord, how do you want to use me? Jesus, I see the same barista every single day. They make me the same drink every single day. And I hear the same stories of brokenness and hurt in their lives. What would it look like for me to just pray for them one day? What would it look like for me to just give them a word of encouragement or something? What would it look like for that to happen? What type of impact could that have upon the lives and hearts of people, bringing wholeness to where there is brokenness? This is what it looks like when we see in the life of Jesus. Now, in closing, I want us to think about three different postures. I mentioned this last week. First posture is one of just simply being close to this. For whatever reason, some might have had bad experiences in considering the work of the Holy Spirit. So we just tend to be closed. We push it off to the forefront 
or the back, I should say, of our mind and not want to think about it. The second posture is just simply being open, just saying, I'm open. Whatever, I'm, I'm open to this. If God wants to do healing, if God wants to work in people's lives, if God wants to speak words of encouragement through me to other people, I'm, I'm open to that. And then the final posture is really one of just actively pursuing. One that simply says at the end of the day, with all of my heart, mind, soul, strength, and might, I really, truly, the very core of my fiber, I want to be like Jesus. You realize that that's what a disciple is? You know that Jesus has a lot of admirers, but not a lot of disciples? A disciple is one that simply says, I want my entire life, everything I do, everything that I say, I want my entire life to look like, to reflect, to act like Jesus. That's what a disciple is. That's what Jesus calls us to. So what's the motivation to this? I'm going to finish with this thought. The motivation is what we see is that what Jesus did when he came into this world for us was that he came into this world to seek and save that which is lost. See, as human beings, oftentimes, especially Western human beings, we love our privacy. We hate when people come too close to us in our little space cushions, right? If you've ever been on, like, public transportation in another country, I was on public transportation once in China. It's a whole other story. But the point of the matter is there is no such thing as, like, private space at all. And so we live our lives oftentimes organizing ourselves so that we don't ever have to have anybody else come into our private space. So therefore, we live with this mentality that I don't ever want to go into somebody else's private space because I know how annoying it is to myself. So we rarely ask the question, God, would you want me to go pray for somebody? Is there somebody that you want to speak through me to this other person that works at Target? God, is there somebody that you want me to just go out of my way and go into their life? So here's the thing. We have a God that refused to let our independence or our autonomy or translated our space bubble interfere with his rescuing plan. We have a God that comes out of his space domain, his space bubble, his godness, his godhood, his glory, in other words, the way it describes it in Philippians chapter 2. And he comes into our brokenness up close and personal to the point of touching the defiled, the broken, the sinner. For one purpose, to make them whole. If you're a Christian here today, the reason why you're a Christian is because you have a God that says, I'm not put off by the space bubbles that you put up. I'm not put off by the margins that you constantly try to fill in between me and you. I'm a God that will come and I will bridge that margin. I will go and I will reach out into the edges where you've sought to run, and I will rescue you and wash you and cleanse you and purify you, give you a new name, give you a new life, and in turn, I will fill you with life itself called the Holy Spirit, and I will send you back into this world to be just like my son. That's what a Christian is. I'm going to invite you to that. We're going to sing, we're going to respond, and we're going to respond right now by singing, by partaking of the Lord's Supper. So why don't we all stand and the worship team come on up. Um, I want to invite you to consider the posture of your heart. What is your posture before God to the working of the Holy Spirit? What God wants to do in your life, through your life right now. Is it closed? Is it open? Is it actively pursuing? Um, we've been encouraging you to just consider like the posture of your body as we sing. Sometimes our posture of our body is, 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 is a good indicator of really the posture of our hearts. One of the reasons why we encourage you, like, 
when we sing, you know, there's nothing magical about it, but it's a way of just aligning the posture of your heart. So we encourage you, maybe consider raising your hand. It's a way of just saying, God, I come to you with hands wide open, needing, in need of you, like a beggar in need of you, looking for handouts. And you're a God that has lots of handouts by grace, by, for free, for me, because I need them. Or having a posture of being on our knees for God. It's just a way of submission, saying, you're king, I'm subject, I'm in need of you, you've got life to give, I have life that I need. It's a way of just ordering or reorienting the posture of your heart to follow the way of the posture of your body. So we have some rugs in the front. So I encourage you, maybe for some of you, that's what, that's what you need to do. You just need to get out from within the context of where you're at, sitting next to somebody that maybe even in your mind mentally blocking you from like, I don't, it's going to look weird if I get on my knees. Then maybe come and just get on your knees for God. It's just a way of just saying, God, I need you. And we respond by uh, the Lord's Supper. And we have this God that comes in this world that throws this party, if you think of it this way, this Lord's Supper. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a way of Jesus extending the table to all to come and eat, to come drink, to come no matter who you are, to be satisfied, to be healed. So let's respond.